My name is Tess Newton-Kane from the Development Policy Centre in Canberra and uh, this week I'm in Fiji which is great and particularly exciting is that I have an opportunity to talk with Tara Chetty who is Programme Director at the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. So Tara, thank you very much for making some time available this evening for us to have a chat. Great to be here, Tess. Uh, great to have the chance to have a chat about some of these very interesting questions that you've come up with. Okay, well, let's let's kick off with my first question, which is about the work of your organisation, the Fiji Women's Rights Movement, and in particularly, in particular, I should say, how FWRM has participated so far in the processes surrounding the drafting of a new constitution for Fiji. Um, yeah, that's a. It's a really interesting question because um, we've been at the really at the forefront of women's engagement in this area through um, a collective known as the Women's Forum. Um, so the Women's Forum is made up of four organisations, Fiji Women's Rights Movement, FemLink Pacific, um, which is a community media, women's media networks um, organization, the Songo Songo Vakamarama, which is um, a network of indigenous Fijian women um, through the traditional um, village networks, um, and the National Council of Women, which is the sort of women's machinery umbrella bodies that are throughout the Pacific. Um, so these four organizations have come together as the Women's Forum, the inaugural one, which was kind of a gathering together of women leaders from around the country, happened in April 2012, and uh, we sort of set our women's leadership agenda for um, in the lead up towards um, a return to democracy. Um, and part of that was really then looking at uh, the government's agenda in terms of the constitution and trying to reframe that from our perspective in terms of how we wanted to engage with it and what we wanted to see in a new constitution. So we had a women's forum in April, a second one in June to really hone in on what strategies we had in mind and then, um, and then a follow-up one in December and then a more focused one just earlier this year um, in terms of women in politics. Um, so basically what the women then, uh, we broke up into a few different areas. A few of us went off to do analysis, a few went off to mobilize around civic education in getting women involved in the constitution making process through trying to enable their submissions. So that was, um, that was a very successful process in relation to the Guy Commission. Um, and what, came, what they came out with, um, the guide draft is also known as the people's draft, um, which reflects kind of the level of um, integration of particularly women's perspectives as well as you know, other communities, other groupings into that, into that draft. So there was a lot in there in terms of um, things that we were very concerned about like temporary special measures for women's um, political participation. Um, th that was included in the draft. Um, there were very comprehensive sector, uh, sections around gender equality in the Bill of Rights um, and, and a lot of really that, that spirit of getting women, enabling women's participation in decision making was throughout the constitution, we felt. Okay. Yeah. And what about what happened subsequently? Because obviously as we know the guy draft is no longer the working draft. There is yeah. now a, a new draft. Yeah. And I understand that one of the concerns of your grouping, that, that forum, is mm -hmm. that some of those aspects that you've just outlined are no longer present. So how has that affected your strategies more recently? 
Right, so um, it's quite interesting the timing of everything. So I think uh, to answer your question in a slightly round, roundabout way, just to give the background, the Women's Forum created an example of how you create a democratic space in a non-democratic context. And FWRM took that example and took it to a broader level, partnering with the Citizens Constitutional Forum to create the People's um, Constitutional Forum, so a People's Forum model based on the Women's Forum, um, based on the Women's Forum model. And it was, um, it was in this space, at, at the moment that we were having this People's Forum, that the government released their draft and also informed the public that they had cancelled the citizen, uh, the constituents' assembly. So that process of um, a kind of um, you know a more representative forum, perhaps for people to debate um, a draft constitution, had been eliminated. Um, so the People's Forum, which was made up of all different sectors, became in effect a sort of um, people's constituent assembly where we debated, um, we looked at, we had been looking at the guide draft, but then very quickly mobilised to have a look at. Um, the government draft as well and compare and of course um, came out with some big concerns about the absence of women in the government's draft and the um, the really paring down and limiting of rights um, in the government's Bill of Rights. So what was interesting to see within the even the People's Forum dynamics was how the women of the Women's Forum quickly mobilized. Uh, when, the, when the draft came out, the announcements came out, you could see the women caucusing and getting together and saying, okay, what now? And what now was a public statement by, by the Women's Forum, uh, the co-conveners. Um, and then they also decided to, that was kind of a reactive thing, but also decided to continue with this sort of proactive opening up and creating of our own space and trying to keep things um, to the women's agenda rather than just conforming with whatever had been issued uh, by the government. So um, they continued with plans for the fourth women's forum, which they had later um, the following month, um, which was focused really on women in politics and getting us ready for the next stage um, beyond the constitution, but also it was a chance to discuss what are the implications of what the government is proposing. And given the very short time, I think it was about um, three, three weeks maybe, uh, that the public was given to comment on this really radically reframed constitution, the women did manage to get out into a couple of communities and have a discussion and um, and invite other women through to, to make submissions to the government process. Although that was more a chance for people just to have a conversation about it because it's very unclear how the public submissions, how the public feedback will be incorporated, if at all, into the government draft. Um, so what we've basically, in sum, what we've really tried to do is to keep to our principles of the Women's Forum that have come out kind of a human rights-based approach, pushing um, temporary special measures for women, just continue on that track and to see, okay, if the constitution is shutting us out, if the government process is shutting us out, what else can we do? So some of the things to look at in the future may very well be to try and work with political parties to push um, women in decision-making through them. Um, and also, of course, to try and empower women as candidates in this process. Okay, so maybe to pick up on that point and also something that you did mention earlier, 
From the FWRM perspective, what do you see as the opportunities and challenges for increasing the role of women in political representation in Fiji after 2014 when we are expecting there to be elections? So, Sorry, the opportunities and challenges. Yeah. Right. Um, I think at any point of disjuncture, you know, at any point where kind of the, you know, the social contract in a way is being renegotiated, there is there is an opportunity. So, you know, the Pacific as a region has the lowest, uh, among the lowest representation of women in formal decision making. So, in this, in this, in this new, as we're embarking on kind of a return to democracy, and we're creating a, you know, a a new framework perhaps now it's really important to keep pushing this this is the moment to to push this agenda it's not let's return to democracy and deal with women's issues later as is often kind of pushed in a broader pro-democracy framework now is the moment to make the commitments to this to push um, political parties to make commitments on paper in practice to women so you know if there's going to be this radically different electoral process, like big, big electoral divisions, um, big, big, um, big constituencies, um, you know, a proportional representation system, then what we've been doing is really equipping ourselves with the knowledge, like what works best for women, and pushing that. Um, so for us, it's been what we've come to understand is we need, if we're going to go with proportional representation system, we need a closed list, uh, closed zippered list. Um, which is kind of a man-woman-man-woman list proposed by political parties which will allow uh, a greater chance for more women to get in. So that's kind of the technical aspect of it that we've equipped ourselves with. And now we push that through the constitution. That we feel is probably largely getting blocked. Now is our moment to try and work through, work with the political parties. So coming up next is, uh, coming up for the next 12 months for us is working with political parties on their manifestos to get women's issues in, working um, to upskill women candidates and to get more women, candidate, uh, more women as candidates in the next election, and then also working on the other side, working with voters, women as voters, and also just on a general public awareness level to try and get um, Fiji voters to recognize women as leaders and to vote for women. So those are the several prongs we're going at. I mean, those are the opportunities that we're trying to reframe. The challenges are, are many. Mm. Um, we're, we're in, we're in a, a military-run government, um, military-run state, um, you know, that is inherently hostile to women and um, has been particularly hostile to efforts to get uh, better representation of women decision-making through a new constitution. Um, you know, categorically they've said no, um, no temporary special measures, no affirmative action. So that's, that's been a very difficult um, place to get any traction on. We, we are within this, uh, we are existing within, you know, a fairly, fairly conservative cultural context, which is also in, it, in and of itself quite hostile to women decision-making in a more general sense. You know, we have women chiefs, uh, but women have a fairly subordinate role in households and it's been quite difficult. That said, we have at the same time, relative to the rest of the Pacific, a very vibrant civil society, um, you know, a very active women's movement, a very active kind of human rights movement. Um, so that's where the opportunities lie in kind of trying to push back at some of those challenges. Okay, thank you for that. That's a really good 
exposition of those issues. Um, I want to move on in a while to uh, uh, some wider questions about political engagement. But before I do that, I guess a sort of a related issue is one about gender-based violence, because I think, as we know, that's a very um, particular manifestation of some of the challenges that you've identified in that political space. And, it, as, and as we know, it's a very significant issue throughout the region. Based on, on what you know and, and your conversations that you have with your colleagues in related organisations, what do you think is the significance of that issue currently in the Fiji context? Gender-based violence. Gender-based violence remains a really serious issue in Fiji. Um, our sister organisation, the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, takes the lead on this issue in the country. Um, but all of our work is, you know, is, in some way, is attempting to address this. Um, you know, Pacific rates, the rates of gender-based violence in the Pacific, as you, as you said, are just, just monumental. Um, it's a serious problem. And in Fiji, it's very difficult often to gauge the level of the problem because of the methods of data collection. So, for example, you know, a bit of a disjuncture between the health sector and the, you know, the judicial and the po police sectors. So, where you're kind of, you know, cases and, and, and incidents and patterns slipping through the cracks. The crisis centre, of course, does a lot of work um, through its service delivery to, to capture some of that, that picture. And um, what they're suggesting is that anecdotal evidence is suggesting is that in the context of a militarized state, in the context of political crisis and a kind of entrenched socio-economic crisis that, that goes with it, um, that tends to exacerbate the levels of gender-based violence because, also because, uh, partly because of kind of the machismo that accompanies that kind of, that kind of state overthrow, that kind of militarized context, but also because of how it damages, also because of how it damages efforts to address also because of how it damages efforts to address um, gender-based violence that have gone in the past for example all the work done on no drop policies all the all the work done with kind of police force in the past that gets um, that gets dismantled and rolled back when that police force becomes militarized or when um, women's NGOs become kind of persona non gratas in relation to the state. So it's the dismantling of work that's gone on before that then kind of exacerbates the situation. Okay, thanks. That's, I think that's a really important point that mm. um, is, is, I think obviously it's particular to Fiji, but I mm. can see also that it resonates elsewhere in, in other countries. Sometimes even just a change in government can mean all of that stuff can get rolled back, as you said. I'd like to come back to um, the political landscape of Fiji a little bit more generally. And you've, you've made reference to the impact of military rule. Looking a little bit more bro broadly, how do you think that this prolonged period of military rule has affected political engagement in Fiji more generally, I guess both in terms of the quantity of political engagement and possibly even the nature and the quality of that engagement? Mm. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I find this question very interesting because you're hitting on a very serious problem for a country trying to rebuild democracy, trying to build a lasting democracy. Because having been in such a prolonged period of undemocratic rule, military rule, has 
has got serious implications. And in particular, it's where, when you look at young people. Um, so in the coming elections, um, you know, we are expecting the voting age to be dropped to 18, and we're looking at a huge, a whole host of, of, um, of new voters. So Fiji is quite representative in terms of the Pacific, when you know across the Pacific we've got like 47% I think it is youth population you know roughly half and Fiji is quite representative we've got a very big youth bulge um, and these these young people are coming to vote for the first time but their large you know most of the experience has been in a military state so they don't have experience of what it means to be an active citizen in a democracy and they are really going to be facing serious challenges in trying to make decisions about picking leaders and their expectations of what a democracy is, you know, as voters. Um, and we're trying, to, we're trying to address this, the Fiji Women's Rights Movement, our partners in the Women's Forum, we're looking to go out and do some work, particularly with young women. Um, and, and with our engagement with other movements, like there's a lot of young people working for democracy at the same time. But, you know, just anecdotally from our work in the community we're seeing that you know young people have really switched off from that because there's not the expectation or the space for them to engage um, so they've really begun to switch off from that I mean as it is it's it's sometimes difficult to get young people to engage um, in in this kind of you know as voters feeling like they can make a difference um, when they're really being shut out that that task becomes so much harder at the same time, I have to point to, to, uh, to the young people who have been involved in pro-democracy work here in Fiji, who are young women who are leaders within the women's movement. Um, so at the same time, there are kind of, um, you know, p pockets of, of young people doing just really amazing work. Um, but yeah, that, that, is, that is still a serious concern. Okay, thank you. And finally, um, looking more broadly again, what do you see as the future role of Fiji in the Pacific on a regional level in going forward? Um, you know, historically and despite the current environment, Fiji continues to be a leader in the region. And, you know, what the forum is finding now is, you know, it's really difficult to move forward um, on, on, on some of the regional kind of mechanisms that they're wanting to implement without Fiji's involvement. Um, I think Fiji will continue to be a leader, and you can see the way, um, kind of in the in the diplomacy of the region, the way it's drawn a lot of focus into the Melanesian Spearhead Group now, because of Fiji, uh, because of Fiji's um, basic exclusion from the forum. There's a lot, a lot more focus on the Melanesian Spearhead Group where it is where it is operating, um, and it's able to get a lot of support from other states. So, yeah, Fiji continues to kind of be. Um, kind of a hub for the South Pacific and, and even though other countries have um, I guess tried to tried to capitalize on the shift in, in power Fiji being out of the forum at the moment that hasn't really worked I think Fiji continues to play really a, le a leading role um, for good or for bad so what's really important I think is um, why we feel the civil society it's really important to take Fiji back to democracy and to try and get that democracy working, you know, f f from a human rights kind of base perspective is that um, because of its influence across the region. So, you know, we don't want it to lead the way in um, 
in, in bad practice. Uh, it has a lot of influence and we want it to, to lead the way in terms of women in decision making, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of better practice. I think when we're thinking regionally also we have to be mindful of um, kind of its geopolitical importance and, and economically. You know, we've got other other players moving into the region. We've got a very close relationship now between Fiji and China with its look north policy. Um, we've got Fiji kind of going ahead and making decisions about things like seabed mining, about taking a strong focus on extractive industries um, and things like that without really a mandate of an elected government, but these decisions are, are going to still, you know, as, as are having a big impact on the country and on the region. Because, you know, once Fiji leads the way, then other countries feel comfortable in following. And in an area, for example, like experimental seabed mining, that's very dangerous. Um, so, you know, Fiji's had really great impact on the region in the past, and we want to push it back towards that, that type of... Uh, that type of a leading light rather than, you know, a very negative example. Tara, that's great. Thank you very much for your time and your your thinking. It's been fascinating to hear the your perspective on a range of issues. Um, so yes, Vanaka, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Tess.